So I, I will admit, I, I never thought this day would come. Uh, it has been more than 15 years, slightly more than 15 years, I believe, since Senator Joe Lieberman and I had a conversation. Prior to that, we had many conversations. Uh, but perhaps it's, it betokens some aspect uh, of his book, uh, which is his new book is called The Centrist Solution, how we, made govern, how we Made Government Work and How We Can Make It Work Again. Uh, maybe there's some aspect to this that, you know, there's some perfect symmetry to all this. Uh, but anyway, uh, without further ado, I, I want to bring him on board. Uh, welcome to our show, uh, author and former senator, Joe Lieberman. Hi. Hi, Colin. It's great to be back, really. Hard to believe it's 15 years. But, um, you know, I saw the uh, requests come in from the people who were uh, um, I guess, doing outreach for the book. And I said, you know, in some strange, surprising, perhaps even perverse way, I miss Colin McEnroe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, absence makes the heart grow fonder. And 15, yeah. 15 years yeah. will do that to you. I'm sure you'll, rem- yeah. sure you'll remember everything you don't like about me as we go along here today. But let, let's talk a little bit about the, the central idea of the book, which is centrism. Um, explain what you mean by centrism. Yeah, thanks. Well, um, the, the important thing to say is that what I mean by centrism is not the same as um, moderation, that uh, centrism is different. Being a centrist is different from being a moderate. You can be a centrist if you're a left or right or Republican or Democrat or a moderate or independent for that matter. The key uh, definition of being a centrist is that you're willing to seek common ground with people who don't agree with you, but but think that something should be done on whatever the problem or opportunity is you're talking about, you're willing to come to the center, talk to them, see what you agree on, see what you can uh, negotiate to get something done. And that's the legislative process. It's the way uh, our country is uh, legislatively has always worked best. Uh, Uh, right from the beginning, right from the Constitutional Convention, when they uh, had some uh, disagreements that that could have uh, made it impossible for the United States of America to take off. But uh, they they found centrist solutions, by my definition. And just to make it clear and and add sort of names to it, personalities, um, uh, using my former colleagues, Ted Kennedy was obviously a liberal Democrat. Uh, John McCain was a conservative Republican, maybe more broadly and less with less maverick content. Uh, Orrin Hatch was a conservative Republican, but all of them could be centrist in the sense that they could um, find their way to the center on something they wanted to get done and make bipartisan partnerships to get it done. Uh, uh, Kennedy was the master at it, often with uh, Orrin Hatch, and I mean, the result was um, the Children's Health Insurance Program, which is a great program adopted in the 90s. He worked on the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, with, with people who didn't start out agreeing with him. And then the one that I described in the book, because I was part of it, uh, was the uh, No Child Left Behind Education Reform, where uh, Ted Kennedy played the central role together with some conservative Republicans in the uh, Senate and with the the, uh, George W. Bush administration. So 
That's my definition of centrism. It's not happening very much, as we all know, in Washington lately. And we really need to get back to it, not just to be able to solve some of the problems the country has and take some opportunities, but really to, to try to rebuild the public's um, trust or confidence in government, which is, you know, at all time lows now, as, as we know. Now, to some people, I am sure you'll differ uh, about this, but to some people, that description of centrism mm-hmm. seems to carry with it a whiff of stewardship over the status quo, status quo, as opposed to pursuing change. I mean, the people who aren't centrists in each party are the people seeking more extensive change. It's the Bernie Sanders and the AOCs uh, and the Democratic Party. Uh, uh, it's... Don't even we'll have to come to the Republican Party for a separate yeah. part of the conversation because they're that in a very part. different place, right? But I mean, it you know somebody could listen to two white men of a certain age and of relatively comfortable circumstances and say, well, their stake in centrism or their stake in change, let's put it that way, their stake in change is different from mine. Nothing is ever going to get better for me if this kind of stewardship of the status quo takes precedence over significant change. So react to that. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So um, I, I don't uh, support uh, centrist uh, solutions because they preserve the status quo. I support them uh, because it's the way to get things done and, and make some progress uh, in our country, uh, solve big problems that we have, and, and as I say, seize opportunities that we have. So, But I, but I understand what you're saying, and I'm implicit so in my, my reaction is, um, if Bernie Sanders, or are you just using him as the, yeah. the, the example for the moment? If, if Bernie Sanders uh, has enough support, uh, not only among the American people, but in Congress, um, he'll make his way to the center <laughs> to, to negotiate with people to get something done. Look, if he, if he, if he really uh, uh, takes off, and he has, you know, enough votes on his own and not need to come to the center uh, to negotiate either with moderate Democrats or Republicans, then, then he'll get it done. But by the nature of our system, um, which, which, you know, 535 people are elected to Congress to represent now uh, 340 million Americans, and I forget the number of uh, registered voters, but it's probably 150, 175 million. It, it, there's a tremendous diversity of opinion there. And um, uh, so in that, usually the, our history shows that to get something done, whether you're Bernie or, you know, who who's on the right, <laughs> Ted Cruz or yeah. whoever. Um, you you really got to uh, get to come to the center to negotiate, or you can decide. And it's a you know it's a respectable uh, conclusion if you really want um, fundamental a big change, not the kind of change that is progressive that comes out of centrist uh, government, but is not really uh, usually unless circumstances are really quite unusual and dire in the country. Um, then you could just sit, stand back uh, and orate on the Senate floor or, or go out and, and campaign among the people and say, you don't want to compromise because the country needs or deserves more compromise. But um, 
that unless you can arouse the support of a of a, a strong plurality or or really a majority of the American voters who are then represented in Congress in that way, um, you're, you're probably not going to do much more than be an advocate. There's a role for that, and it does often affect what people do when they come to the center, but um, you're not going to get done exactly what you want to get done. So, um, uh, all, all, all very good. Um, <laughs> all very well and good, but um, but yeah, I mean, in, in other words, what you're saying is you can, if you're Bernie Sanders, you will let the perfect be the enemy of the good, to use the cliche. You'll kind of stay out there, uh, and yeah. and hold 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 on to your ideas as opposed to compromise in the center, right? Yeah, if that's what you want to do. I mean, Bernie's been known to uh, compromise. Um, along the way because uh, he does i think he does want to get things done he wants to get more done by his terms than probably there's a majority or in the senate 60 votes to get done but um yeah that's right if you want to be an advocate i mean it's, it's a uh, this brings to mind and it's not it, it is connected but not not exactly which is sometimes people say to me uh, over the years in part because i ran as an independent uh, to get reelected to the Senate in 2006 after I lost the Democratic primary. Well, why don't, what, what's the big deal about the two parties? Why don't we, uh, why, don't, why don't we all form a third party? And um, I, I always say, well, go ahead. <laughs> why not? If that's, if that's what you feel. But history, American history tells us that, uh, you know, third parties don't, don't have a, a much of a track record for winning. You have to go back to Lincoln, really and the Republican Party that took the place of the Whig Party in 1860. Uh, right, and, uh, and in presidential elections, you also face the specter of dividing the vote enough so that the House of Representatives winds it, up you know, calling it, an election. It, we're, not, we're not really it, built for third-party politics, at least at the presidential level. But let me ask you this it, then, because if I, they're... Yeah, go ahead. Very quickly. Here's why I'm making a metaphor, and I, I went off too much on, on the background, which is that... Uh, an effective third-party presidential candidacy, um, though it has uh, not much uh, chance of winning, has over our history affected the other two parties. So the, the most recent is Ross Perot in 1992, got 19% of the vote. But I'd say Perot played a large role in putting the balanced budget on the uh, toward the top of the agenda of Bill Clinton. And when he got elected, after five, six years in office, he actually uh, adopted it and the government was in surplus for three years, his last three years. So I'm saying that sometimes if we use Bernie again, if Bernie stands off and just is an advocate, uh, like the third party candidates are advocates, they nonetheless sometimes can have an effect on uh, people of the two parties, including those who are coming to the center to to try to negotiate solutions. So yeah, I hope that's clear. Yeah, yeah, that's clear. I, yeah. yeah. So okay, let's talk about the other party. I mean, in some ways, to, to some eyes, this is a strange time to put out a book advocating centrism when one of the parties appears to be broken. Um, you, right now, within the world of political journalism, there's a debate going on. Can we 
cover these two national parties in, in, with the kind of equivalency that's priced in ordinarily to, to political journalism. I mean, you've got a party that will not full-throatedly endorse election results. Uh, and, right. and you've got a third party, I mean, you get a party, excuse me, that will not full-throatedly uh, pursue prosecution of people who attacked the Capitol. You've got a third party that you know, that really won't even necessarily endorse basic medical science during a pandemic, not reliably yep. going to support things like masks uh, and vaccines. You've got a party that really doesn't resemble the party that you worked with, even. There's no, there's, there are right. fewer Arlen Specters there now, you know, and, right. and even Orrin Hatches. You know, Orrin Hatch would be like a moderate, you know, or a, he'd be like Liz Cheney. He'd be in all kinds of trouble probably right now. So talk about right. that. How do you reach a handout? to that particular group of people? Uh, that, that's a real problem. And it may with the hardcore of the Republican uh, Party, which may, for the moment, uh, at least insofar as they express support for Trump, who articulates and advocates most of the positions you just described, they may actually represent the majority of rank-and-file Republicans. And, and that makes it, much harder. I mean, there, there are things you can unite people on. The, the, there was a recent success in Congress with a bipartisan uh, infrastructure reform bill. And uh, it started with a group in the House that this group, I'm a, a co-chair of No Labels, which tries to bring about sort of bipartisan centrist government again, started in the House with our caucus there and then went to the Senate and um, we, we had we had about uh, in the end 19 Republicans voted for the bill. Now, I, I and there I admit this is not um, they probably weren't the, the people within the Senate Democratic Caucus. Generally speaking, I think they were not, as I recall, who voted for it, who were who subscribed with a, <clears throat> a seeming passion to the, uh, the the positions that you've described that are so to me un-American or anti-American. Um, that, um, but, but there were 19, including Mitch McConnell who signed on. Now I, I understand this is a public works bill, as we used to say in the Connecticut legislature, it's not, um, you know, immigration reform, but there was some significant climate change, uh, anti-climate change stuff to it. So it, it can happen, but, but Colin, you're right. It's, this is tough. Look, I often think about that both parties are struggling within themselves. I mean, the democratic party uh, has a struggle, as we see in the Congress now over uh, some of the legislation between, oh, the, the, the progressive so-called in the House Democratic Caucus and the moderates, et cetera, in both chambers. Um, and that, that's, that is significant and, and may work it out if Biden doesn't run again uh, in a, a Democratic primary for president. But um, to me, that's a, a difference of opinion. I disagree with, with uh, a bunch of the things that the progressives uh, are advocating, but my disagreement is on a whole other level than, uh, you know, the people who refute, uh, ins inspired, I'd say instigated by uh, Trump, who refused to acknowledge the uh, reality of his loss uh, in the 2020 elections and and that led to this nightmarish 
attack on the Capitol with, with an intention to, to stop the constitutional process of um, electing a new president. And to me, uh, that, that's a whole different order of threat to our country. Um, and, uh, and it does, you're right, make it hard, hard to uh, get those people to the center. I'd, almost, I'd say it's on most issues impossible. However, I, I do have some hope that the, that the will of the people ultimately went out here. And, my, and to me, to state it briefly, and I'm happy to talk about it more, um, the, the Republicans have a real problem now because really, and if you look at the polling on Biden and who, who do you favor in a generic vote for Congress, um, they're, they're really doing very well and Democrats are not doing well at the moment. Um, but uh, and that augurs well for the 2024 presidential election, even though it's a long time from now. But but if Trump runs and gets nominated again, which, which I presume he'd be the uh, a lead contender to, to to win to get the nomination, I don't think he can get elected. I mean, unless the Democrats nominate somebody. Um, that uh, he, he can uh, describe as a greater threat to our country than he would be. And uh, so, so you see what I'm saying? I, I feel like there's, and even on the polling among Republicans on Donald Trump, he's, he's going down some now. You know, I, I, <laughs> I was in a cab uh, the other day in New York, and the driver was very conservative, typical, you know, just the standard jokes about, uh, but really angry jokes about Biden being uh, not totally with it and, and all this stuff about Hunter Biden and just not, you know, nonsense. And then uh, he gets to Trump and he says, gee, I, ho- I hope he doesn't run again because he can't win. So I, I feel like something may be happening out there. I sure hope so. All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're going to pause here. We're talking to Joe Lieberman. Uh, his new book is The Centrist Solution, and we'll tell you more about it when we come back. I want everyone to like me. I want everyone to like me. Real bad. I want everyone to approve of me. disapprove of me makes me feel so sad what in the respect of my peers take a hundred years I'd like to find out where they are by the way support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare elevating health is funded by Hartford Healthcare a lot of people struggle with sleep apnea and with CPAP machines. Dr. Carl Muller, a head and neck surgeon with Hartford Hospital, describes Inspire, a surgical alternative to the CPAP approach. Only about 60% of patients can tolerate CPAP real well. Inspire is a surgical alternative to CPAP. It's an outpatient surgery. It takes about two hours. And essentially what it does is it picks up when you're taking a breath and sends a two-second electrical pulse to the tongue, which causes the tongue to stick out a little bit and stiffen and prevent the airway from collapsing. Hartford Hospital has performed more than 200 Inspire therapy surgeries. If you've tried and failed with CPAP, you could be a candidate for this minimally invasive procedure. 
patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea are candidates. There is a weight criteria. So you have to have a body mass index below 35 and you have to have to have tried and failed CPAP. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. When we think of slavery in the U.S., we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. We're back. We're, we're with Senator Joe Lieberman. His book is The Central Solution, How We Make Government Work and Can Make It Work Again. So um, one of the – we should say that the book is kind of anecdotal in nature. I mean it really you know, follows you throughout your entire political career and, and you look at different situations where, where in fact centrist solutions worked and where you learned certain principles uh, and practices of centrism. One that would be top of mind, I think, based on the conversation you and I just had, uh, would be the 2000 election. You, like Donald Trump, went through the experience of having some doubt uh, as a result of a very close election uh, about who had won that election. In your in the case of you and Al Gore, it was all focused on one state, the state of Florida. In the case of Trump, he tried to cast doubt on the validity of, of the outcome in many different states and tried to coerce, in many cases, Republican officials in those states into coughing up some kind of rationale claiming that he'd actually won. But so, you know, you guys, one of the sort of kind of handed down versions of, of 2000, and you sort of confirm it in this book, is that you were a little bit more inclined in Florida to say to, to Vice President Gore, you know, as long as we've got a few musket balls left here, we shouldn't give up. Uh, that, that Gore was maybe ready to con- a little bit ready, more ready to concede or ready to concede earlier than you were. So talk about how that time looks at looks to you and then let's apply it to 2020. Uh, will do. So, um, well, it was interesting. I mean, the the weekend after the uh, election day, uh, we met at the vice president's house in Washington with a bunch of the campaign officials and uh, some of the lawyers. The lawyers at that time were led by former Secretary of State Warren Christopher. And there there, um, was some feeling around the table that we should be selective about where we litigated in Florida. But you're right, Colin, obviously, that uh, there was a big difference between uh, the post-election period in 2000 and in 2020, which was that we were all totally focused on uh, Florida, that it was pretty clear that we had um, won the popular vote by more than 540,000 votes. The question was what, what was going to happen uh, in Florida. And I, 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 I did argue that day uh, with mixed success, not all of them, and this really, as I said that day, was undoubtedly based on my experience, as a, particularly as Attorney General of Connecticut, which is that if you, have, you feel you have a plausible argument in litigation, in this case, in contesting different things that happened uh, uh, on election day or leading up to it, well, you ought to make that case and uh, let the judge decide in this case. There were no juries here, but let the judge 
uh, decide. And, and if, if you lose, you lose. So as I say, I won some, lost some in that discussion. But the, the really telling moment and, and I'm, I'm, was, uh, so the, the Friday, uh, I forgot the date, but the Friday before the end of it all, in December, we had gone through that month-long uh, period with the Chads and all the rest and a lot of litigation. And that Friday, we we won, uh, our campaign won the case in the Florida Supreme Court, and there, there was uh, um, almost irrational exuberance, as Alan Greenspan used to say. Uh, and uh, we, I went right over to the vice president's house. We had a wonderful dinner that night, and just uh, everything looked great. The next thing, uh, the next day, much to our shock, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court accepts the case on appeal, which I felt and still do. They had no basis for doing, and their, their decision was also without basis as well. So, uh, flash forward quickly to um, Tuesday. Um, the cases argued that Monday, the Tuesday, I think was December 12th. Um, so later at night, maybe 10, 30, 11, um, Vice President Gore called me at home and said the court had issued its ruling and they had sided with Bush. Um, and uh, um, he had had the decision described to him, but he hadn't seen it. Um, and he said, there is a question because some of the lawyers in the campaign feel that the decision leaves open to us the possibility, the option of going back to the Florida Supreme Court and asking for a statewide uh, recount. And he asked me what I thought. And I said, you know, consistent with what I have argued right after the election day. And, and again, this is my attorney general background. I don't. I said, Al. I haven't seen the decision, but based on what you told me, if some of the lawyers in the campaign feel there's a plausible reason to go back to the Florida Supreme Court, um, why not? Um, uh, there's so much on the line in terms of the future of the country and all that, and our well, what we think uh, is best for the country and what the Bush-Cheney ticket thinks. And um, he said, okay, I'm going to think about it. He called me back, oh, it was probably 1230. Uh, a.m. That, that day. And he said, you know, I've thought about it and I think it's just time for this to end. If we go back to Florida, uh, it'll take um, more than a month. Uh, January 20th, the new administration is supposed to be sworn in. There'll be a constitutional crisis in the orderly transition of government. It's just, it's, it's just time for us to stop. We probably won't win in Florida. He says, I don't understand we have a chance. But anyway, I, I said, look, obviously, it's your call, and I respect you for it. That was that. And I'm looking the end, and certainly as compared to what President Trump did in 2020, and still does in refusing to accept uh, the judgment, he filed more, uh, more than 50 lawsuits in many states, as you said, after the 2020 uh, election. They were decided by judges appointed by. Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, and he didn't win a single case. But he did. He has no understanding or regard for the whole system of law that sometimes, even if you disagree with it, as Gore and I did profoundly uh, with the Supreme Court decision in Bush v. Gore, sometimes for the good of the country, you got to say, that's it. And uh, of course, he still hasn't said it, uh, which is harmful to the country. So I must say, looking back, as I say in the book, I think maybe I was wrong and Al Gore was right 
that it was time to stop. But the consequences were um, were great, and um, um, you know, uh, and and we see the uh, the other side of it, as I say, of Trump, uh, who really refused to put the country first and put himself first, even though, as you know, um, he uh, uh, the uh, it, he lost the election by millions of votes more than. Uh, popular votes uh, more than uh, more than we did. So, you know, the problem, it's easy to make Trump kind of the, the proxy for, for all of this. But there's a, another problem, too, which is that Republican leadership and Republican rank and file in Congress, they just haven't been emphatic in, in, in endorsing that idea. This this notion that 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 Biden's presidency is still illegitimate, festers and and, and hurts us uh, as a society. Partly not just because of Trump, but because of all of his enablers, and there there are so many of them. They that you would have expected, I think, them to join hands and say, "We're really sorry, but all all options have been exhausted. This election goes to President Biden. He's the real president." They haven't. That part the party hasn't done that. It's not just Trump, right? There's a lot of people who could step forward. And, and make a difference, and they don't. So, so talk about that. No, I agree. I mean, look, why why is uh, uh, Liz Cheney and uh, 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 Kinsler, Congressman Kinsler, emerge as heroes, like worthy of chapters and profiles and courage? Because um, uh, it's it's a variation of the tired old line that in the land of the blind, the one-eyed person is king. Uh, because the Republicans have been cowed by. Um, Trump, uh, because of what appears to be his um, uh, hold on a majority of Republican um, voters around the country. And in a way, this is a, it's not a microcosm, it's a, it's an, a kind of illumination of one of the um, underlying reasons why it's so hard for Congress to come up with centrist solutions today because members of both parties are afraid of upsetting the uh, the core constituencies left or right because they don't want a primary in the next uh, campaign uh, and even if they think they go win the general election so they're risk averse so they they don't they don't you can't solve a big problem uh, legislatively, including coming to the center, um, most of all, by making everybody happy. Some people are going to be unhappy about the compromises you made. But in the end, I mean, why did you work so hard to get elected? So you could get elected again and again and just say, oh, I played it safe. I got elected. And hopefully you want to look back and say, I did this or I, I helped this uh, happen. And uh, yeah, no, I think that the the... Uh, failure of more Republicans to uh, at least say um, what is objectively true and, and, and just consistent with our Constitution and the rule of law, Donald Trump and Mike Pence lost the election in 2020. And what happened on January 6th was an abomination and, and, and in some ways a bigger threat to America than even the Civil War, uh, which was obviously um, serious and severe. But uh, uh, no, I, I agree. Now, even, now, Mitch McConnell is interesting because he seems at times to trying to move the uh, Republican Party away from Trump. He's smart enough to know that 
although Trump has a hold still, maybe a little looser than it used to be on the Republican rank and file, that ultimately Trump's brand uh, doesn't win a majority in in uh, most, uh, not only in the country, but certainly in most uh, Senate elections. But then he gets pulled back a little because probably his members were in uh, competitive states, um, that is in terms of primaries, don't want him to offend Trump too much. And well, it's, it's let's, just, let's talk it's about so McConnell. Let's talk about McConnell, because, you know, reading your book, too, one of the things that I was thinking about is I was thinking about you as a person who uh, I think part of the message of this book is that you very heavily subscribe to the kinds of norms that have existed in the Senate for decades that allow people to cooperate and people to be on the same page about things. And it seemed to me that that McConnell, pre-Trump, McConnell, in his refusal to to let the Merrick Garland Supreme Court nomination uh, follow the natural course, in his sudden invocation of a rule that had never really existed before, that, that to me, that is one of the beginnings uh, of the erosion of, of the common civil practices that that make the Senate work when it works, right? I mean, I don't know. What was your what's your assessment of that? Yeah. Well, listen. First off, uh, what, what's happened in the Senate is as a reflection of the sort of diminishing civility in our public discourse, even in our entertainment culture, um, over the years. So it comes into the Senate. People are very. Uh, much nasty. I mean, there, we've had spirited campaigns, tough campaigns, sometimes really attack campaigns from really the beginning from the uh, post-independence years. But generally speaking, people came back together and 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 figured out how to work for a while to make the government work for the people who are good enough to elect them. And and Mitch c- can do that. He's very good at the Senate, but he's also very partisan. Um, was, was it and, wrong for him not to call the Garland nomination? Oh yes, I mean it was okay. He had a he had a purpose um, which was personal and partisan, really, and ideological. Um, I mean, not in the same. I mean, it's interesting because Merrick Garland was not a judge who you'd say was a far left judge, but he was, I guess, in judicial philosophy, center left. He certainly wasn't. Um, um, a, a deep conservative, which is what uh, big parts of the Republican constituency want. So um, uh, McConnell stopped him, but it, but it was wrong. And, it, and it's had an effect on the court. I mean, you know this, but it's not so long ago that um, uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg and Justice Scalia at different times mm. both got more than 90 votes confirming them. Why? Because uh, they reflected the views of the president who was nominating them, and uh, the majority of uh, senators felt both parties felt that both of them were highly capable of being uh, Supreme Court justices, and they were not going to apply uh, an ideological or partisan litmus test to the court. And and uh, so the kind of what Mitch McConnell did to Merrick Garland, I think unfortunately, has uh, also uh, added to what I would say, uh, thinking about 2000, to the decline of trust in the Supreme Court uh, as a uh, as what the founders intended it to be, which is a totally non-partisan, non-political arbiter 
uh, of our of our law, the final word on what the law is uh, in America. And we 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 suffer from it. As I say, Mitch um, uh, periodically seems to be trying to pull the party away. I wouldn't say pull, nudge the Republican Party away from Trump, but. Um, it's not uh, it's not a loud voice and of course in the House Kevin McCarthy is a totally uh, um, pro Trump if you will yeah um, I guess in pursuit of being the speaker so it's a it is a real problem and it's hard I don't know if I can easily compare McConnell to uh, Bob Dole who I got to know well and we're thinking about because he passed away just a couple of days ago but um, he was a partisan he was a party leader but he was also quite open to bipartisan um, partnerships, if you will, and particularly maybe this is his generation, the greatest generation, World War II hero. Uh, he he worked always across party lines um, on foreign policy and defense policy. So, I mean, he really started a push uh, uh, to get the U.S. And, and NATO to do something about the aggression and genocide in the Balkans in the 90s, and he started, to his credit, when uh, George H.W. Bush was president, and he continued with people like me and, ironically, McCain and Biden until it finally, finally Clinton acted, but so he, he was he was different. Uh, yeah, so uh, let, let me talk about know. another figure who's also different from Dole, I think, uh, and yeah. different from what you're talking about, who's in your book, and, and I also heard you, and I don't know if he interviewed you or the two of you had a conversation, you could characterize it, on his podcast, because you were just talking about, and I think very justifiably, talking about the kind of the death of civility, uh, the way in which language has become more, in political language has become more inflammatory, as you say, possibly as a reflection of the greater culture, but also I think there have been certain people who have who have kind of leveraged that. And I can't think of anybody to whom I ascribe more authorship of the decline in political civility and the replacement of that with incendiary divisive language than Newt Gingrich. So this is when I really felt like I was on the bizarro planet is both in your book and I listened to you talk to him on his podcast. You know, yeah. I mean, this is a guy who b- was Trump before Trump in a lot of ways. And and I'm, a st- I'm surprised to hear you treat him like a, yeah. a, a, a force for conciliation. I mean, in fact, he rejected the conciliatory politics of Bob Dole and, and, and Robert Michael at the time, you know, because c- he didn't right. want to do that. He wanted to burn stuff down. So I don't know. How does how does Gingrich get to be have most yeah. favored uh, congressman status uh, in, in your book and, and, and in your speech? Well, I'm 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 describing uh, what I saw and experienced, but I must say, uh, when it happened, particularly when he worked with uh, President Clinton, um, it, I was I was surprised, perhaps more than that, shocked. Um, so because he, he was never Trump, he, he had he's always had a a, a real kind of student. He, he's very smart. He understands American history. Uh, I remember that after the two th- after the nineteen ninety four election, when he with his contract with America. Uh, he captured the Republican majority in the House for the first time in decades. And I took Hadassah and I went for a post-election vacation in Florida. And uh, I could see us. We stayed at a friend's house. 
and it was raining. So we, uh, we just turned on the television in the morning and I flipped around to C-SPAN and there he was. He was giving a, a day or two after um, the election and because uh, I thought he was, uh, you know, just far out. So he gave a very reasoned, I didn't agree with a lot of it, but speech which was like civilizational, if you will. But the most surprising thing is that uh, he, I, I, I don't know if I can say exactly, because I wasn't there in the room with them at that point, who initiated the relationship between him and Clinton. Let's assume for a moment it was Clinton, because he ran against Clinton. He, 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 it was a terrible midterm defeat for President Clinton, and Clinton went through all those gyrations with Dick Morrison triangulating after that. But what really was the most surprising is that he developed, not in a smooth line, but this working relationship with Gingrich that produced oh, a series of domestic reform bills, and most significantly, the Balanced Budget Act of 1997, which actually, as I said before, balanced the budget for the last three years. Uh, of the Clinton administration actually ran a surplus, which is the last time that's happened uh, uh, since then. And I, why did it happen? Uh, it's it's exactly what I would hope happens with centrism, which is that, um, which is that they both needed it to happen. And again, it didn't happen. They had moments where they were at war with each other, but in the end, they were both policy wonks. Uh, I give Clinton a lot of credit for this because he he was he's very patient at, at, at trying to get people to work with him and convince him that what he wants is reasonable and acceptable to although, them. True, although I and, do, we're going to have to go to a break right here. I do want to say yeah. that, you know, um, some of the bills that you're talking about, I'm thinking in particular of welfare reform uh, and, yeah. and the anti-crime bill, those are bills that ultimately, because maybe because they represented compromises, Democrats have had to walk back from. Hillary Clinton herself, you know, yeah. in, in her subsequent runs have said, well, you know, maybe we went too far. And went too far, I think, means too far in the direction uh, of compromise. Anyway, but we can get back to that if you want after the break. Yeah. But we've got to take this break right now. We'll be back with more of Joe Lieberman. Oh, before we get back to Joe Lieberman, I got to thank Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer, uh, senior producer emeritus. Betsy Kaplan produced this episode. We're talking to Senator Joe Lieberman. His new book is The Centrist Solution, How We Made Government Work and Can Make It Work Again. So before we run out of time, I, I do want to ask you this, and this might be the more uncomfortable part of our conversation. Um, 
You know, listening to you talk to Newt Gingrich on his podcast, at one point near the end of this kind of 25-minute or so interview, you talked about the excesses of the left within the Democratic Party. You're talking about wokeness education in schools and, and defund the police and stuff. But at no point did you say to Gingrich, you guys have got to clean up your act, too. You can't have a party that doesn't accept legitimate election results. You can't have a party that tolerates or refuses to extensively prosecute what happened on January 6th. You can't have a party that opposes science and demonizes public servants like like Dr. Fauci uh, at the expense of public health. You can't do that. And, and I'm Guess I'm wondering, do, do you, you didn't do it with Gingrich. Do you ever do it? Do you say to Republicans that you know, the people that you like and trust, your party is in a hole right now and it's got to climb out or it's going to poison the whole country with the stuff that's in that hole? Yeah, I, I do that uh, all the time. In, in a way, I did it, you might say gratuitously, but I wanted to get it in there in my reaction to January 6th because I, I castigate uh, Trump. Uh, quite explicitly. Um, and incidentally, a lot of times when I have this conversation with a Republican uh, friends, generally former colleagues in uh, the Senate or people, for instance, who were in the Bush administration, they agree. And uh, they're, they're trying to figure out how to, in a sense, take the, uh, take the party back. Um, so, you know, I accept the criticism. I guess part of what was happening with Newt is that he was asking me questions that were encouraging comments on the, some of the uh, excesses of the left of the Democratic Party. But of course, as I said earlier, I think the excesses of this Trump group in the Republican Party are actually more... I disagree with uh, a lot of the things that people on the left, left of the Democratic Party are asking for, but... I, I think that the more than disagree with the people on the right right of the Republican Party, uh, I think they're really uh, dangerous to our country and, and to the rule of law, to the constitutional order, to the unity of the country, which, which has been our ultimate strength. And incidentally, the unity of the country, which enables, when it works, centrist solutions. So... Uh, I, I want to add one more thing about Gingrich and why it worked with Clinton. It worked for political reasons because they both needed to show that they could get something done. And they both realized in the end, after there was a lot of fighting publicly between them, that they needed the other to get something done. I mean that politically. They wanted to say to their respective supporters, look, I, this is what we did. So that, that was the motivation to come to the center and negotiate uh, bipartisan solutions with each other. The, the countervailing forces today, um, uh, the gerrymandering of the House districts, the impact of limitless money on members of uh, Congress, the, the way in which the media have become so partisan, including particularly now social media, um, it's, it, it's it, the countervailing pressures on that kind of coming together of, of Clinton and Gingrich, or let's go back to uh, Reagan and O'Neill, which is sort of, even though they were quite different, their personalities were not. And then uh, even back to the 60s with Lyndon Johnson and Edward Dirksen and the, their cooperation of the Civil Rights Act. So to me, those are the moments when we get something done or, or the work that I was privileged to do with uh, McCain or Susan Collins or uh, others on things like the Clean Air Act and 
uh, repealing uh, "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" or or the uh, all the stuff we did after 9/11. So I, I just I hope the book uh, gives uh, people who read it some encouragement that it's not so hard to to make the system work again. You just have to have the will, and part of it is the uh, guts to stand up uh, to uh, stand up and say what you believe, <laughs> even if uh, powerful interests, including your party leaders. Uh, disagree with it because that's the, that's what you were elected to do. Yeah, and, and it just seems as though even and so many of them like and trust you. It just seems like that, yeah, I'm trying to find some way to take the party back. Answer, it just doesn't fly anymore. I mean, yeah. ultimately, if you're going to treat a disease, you have to acknowledge you have the disease. And, and in this case, I think you have to publicly acknowledge we have a disease. You know, we are no longer, I mean, look, a party that won't accept election results, it's like a football team that won't accept the final score. You know, I mean, both teams have to agree. The person who's sure. the team that scored more points wins wins the game. We don't even have that right now. That's a basic existential problem for this country. So I don't know. I mean, you're somebody because of all the things you talk about in this book, they'll sort of listen to you. So I don't know. Are you holding their feet to the fire enough? We only got about a minute or so left. Maybe not. Uh, so I, I, as to play my echo, my hero, JFK, <laughs> I do not shrink from the challenge you have issued in my direction. I welcome it. And, um, I hope I could do it. They're 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 fighting political fear with, with, and self interest, which is a terrible thing to watch, really. And um, uh, but but in the end, uh, the, the the Republicans who remain silent today are losing. And uh, not only will history not judge them well, but in the end, they're going to look back and say, "No, why the hell didn't I speak out?" So. Um, I uh, I will speak out more. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be the first time you ever did anything I told you to do. But, you know, it's never too late. All right. Uh, Senator Joe Lieberman is the author of The Centrist. <laughs> what you-, you know, so. Yeah. Anyway. Great to talk to you, Colin. Good to talk to you. The book is called The Centrist uh, Solution. Uh, the author is Joe Lieberman. Uh, this went way better. <laughs> last time we talked, which was in March of 2006. So um, we're done for the day, and we'll be back tomorrow. We just keep doing these radio shows. She's going too far. Now some folks, they call me a card. Cause I left her at the driving that night. But I'd rather have names thrown at me. And to fight for a thing that ain't right I used to sleep at the foot of old glory And awake in the dawn's early light But much to my surprise when I opened my eyes I was a victim of the great compromise